right now we're um, on the doorstep of Yom Kippur, and we just finished Rosh Hashanah, and we're, right, we're in this uh, uh, period called the Ten Days of Repentance, uh, that begins with Rosh Hashanah and ends with Yom Kippur, and these are the days where we you know, self-reflect, we analyze, we assess, we evaluate who we are as individuals, what we're trying to accomplish, we have more of a macro picture of, who, of what we're trying to do here in life and how we're fulfilling our goals, and... Uh, it's the time where uh, traditionally it's been uh, about um, self-introspection and kind of assessing who we are um, uh, and how we're doing, so to speak, with our interpersonal relationships, but also with our relationship with God. You know, that's where the prayers of the of these time, the liturgy is all uh, directed at trying to encourage us to kind of ask those questions. So I, that's why I waited till now. But I encourage anyone else if they don't have a topic to talk about it. Uh, everyone's still alive. <laughs> <laughs> if there's something that they want to hear, please don't hesitate to email me, and I'll see if we could we'll see if we could uh, work into the schedule. Uh, just uh, one other quick note before we start. I, I think I have more information that I want to cover today than I think I've ever had in a class. I, I, that's what I think. So I, I haven't done the ma- mathematics, so I'll try to do as much as we can, and uh, and we'll see how it goes. Okay, but uh, as usual, don't hesitate to interrupt and ask and try to. Uh, 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 you know, assist uh, in the dialogue of the discussions. Okay, so Yom Kippur, I think just before we even get started, Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah, these are, 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 are days where we have responsibilities, right? Where we're guided to do specific things, but also, also opportunities, you know? Um, our sages tell us that they always compare um, our growth to, to a ladder. You know, we have Jacob's Ladder, and, and it's demonstrating how every stage that we grow as humans, as individuals, in every aspect of our lives, it's always, it's always step after step, run after run, you can't jump around. It's like that with relationships, it's like that with our career, and it's obviously like that with our spirituality, with our faith, with our you know, relationship to God, relation to other people. It's always like that. But there are exceptions. There's some times where we're able to jump a few runs and just have a meteoric rise uh, in er- certain eras of our lives, uh, and uh, that those are opportunities, those opportunities to accomplish a lot more than we would have otherwise been able to accomplish. Yom Kippur is such an opportunity. Yom Kippur is a day where the normal uh, um, restrictions on uh, accomplishments are just thrown away temporarily, and it's an opportunity, and um, what we're going to try to do today is try to prepare ourselves to, to learn about this opportunity uh, because the more prepared we are, the more we know about it, the more we have an understanding of what exactly it is we're trying to do, the more successful we will likely be in actually uh, doing that. Uh, we have the verse uh, that talks about karul um, call out to God when God is close. And our sages tell us in multiple places in the Talmud that God is close specifically to us uh, on the days of uh, days of repentance, days of Rosh Hashanah, and especially Yom Kippur, and additionally, the verse that talks about Yom Kippur, I know that sounds like French for some people, but I'll translate that in English. Uh, for on this day, it's torn to Yom Kippur. Uh, God will atone for you, to purify you from all your sins. Close to God, you shall become pure. Once again, this idea of being close to God, it's kind of like opportunity. Like you, you have this audience with the king. You have an audience and you have an opportunity. You want to seize it. You don't want to, you don't want to, you don't want to lose out on such an opportunity. Uh, so that's the, the way, by way of introduction. But more specifically to our topic, um, our topic is forgiving other people. You know, we, 
the human condition is that, you know, we have relationships, we have personal relationships, professional relationships, we have familiar relationships, uh, and it doesn't always go as planned. And sometimes we feel like someone did something, did something wrong to us, someone mistreated us, someone embarrassed us, someone said not, not something nice to us, someone betrayed our trust. These are experiences that are ubiquitous across uh, uh, human relationships. And before Yom Kippur, we're told that you're supposed to seek forgiveness uh, from people that you have wronged, but also to forgive those that have wronged you. But I, I want to I want to, as, as way of introduction to try to analyze why is it so hard to forgive others. You know, when you feel like someone is something wrong to you, you kind of uh, you harbor it, and that's that's a, that, that's a, react, a reality. If I told told you someone who, who bullied you as a kid, you know, you might still have very bad feelings towards that person. So it, it seems like it doesn't just go away with time. It's something that you know you'll kind of hold with you as you go through life. And I wanted to analyze why is it so difficult, why is it a little difficult to let go of uh, the misdeeds that other people, that other people did to you, you know? And it's, I think that we all kind of know this experience, you know? We've all had relationships that, uh, either business relationships or family or whatever it was, spouses that did something wrong to us a long time ago and we kind of always bring it back up. Why is it hard? Why is it hard when someone does, uh, pains us, when someone does something not nice to us, or we perceive it to be not nice? Um, why is it so hard to let go? Why is it so hard to forgive? And I want to use this as a springboard to kind of uh, o- open up a discussion about not only uh, individual, but kind of a, a more of a broader picture on your people. And you'll see what I mean by that. So, the 10 days of repentance. We have the 10 days of repentance. We have bookended by two major holidays, Rosh Hashanah we just celebrated, and Yom Kippur coming up this, this Saturday. And Rosh Hashanah is called the Day of Judgment, Yom Haddin, Day of Judgment, and Yom Kippur is the Day of Atonement, the Day of, uh, of Mercy, the Day of Forgiveness. So to speak, God judges us on Rosh Hashanah. Right? As we say in the prayer, God writes the verdict, so to speak, and then God seals the verdict on Yom Kippur. Right. Uh, for example, a part of the prayers, um, translated here from Hebrew, on Rosh Hashanah it will be written, and then Yom, and this is part of the highlight of the prayers and the Nisana Tokif prayer, uh, and Yom Tzom Kippur Yichasemun, and Yom Kippur will be sealed. How many people will be created in the world? How many people will, will, will die? Who will live and who will die? Who will die in his right time, so to speak? It means who will live a full life and who will, will, uh, who will die uh, prematurely? Uh, who will die with water, who's going to drown, who's going to die in a fire. You know, we had, I had a student of mine, very tragically, this past year. She had a, uh, she had a gas fire, you know, while she was sleeping. And her whole house just, just went up in flames and she died, you know. And it's terrible, tragic, and it was just random. It was just like, you know, she was in her sleep in the middle of the night. But, you know this 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 like like this this, this should steer us. You know it's you know she, healthy woman I assume, um, and she just died one day. She went to sleep and the next day she woke up. She's dead. Oh, she didn't wake up. I mean, she did. I don't know, but terrible, tragic. And uh, and on Rosh Hashanah we read that on Rosh Hashanah it's determined who's going to die and who's going to die with fire, who's going to die with water, who's going to die out of hunger, who's going to die of thirst. Like these these are things that it's it's part of the prayers. Who's going to become wealthy? Who's going to strike it big? And who's going to lose their money? Right? Whose status is going to be raised and whose status is going to be lowered? Right? 
stats on Rosh Hashanah, day of judgment, day of determining a verdict. Now that's an open that's an open verdict, right? You still have the appeals process, so to speak. And and on on, on Yom Kippur it's kind of sealed. And especially at the end of Yom Kippur, the Ni'ila prayer, which is the 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 one time a year we have a prayer, um, Ni'ila. It's only one time a year, so Yom Kippur at the end. And Ni'ila means sealing or closing or sealing the books. It's 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 finalizing, finalizing the judgment. That's why it's the peak, it's the climax, so to speak, of Yom Kippur. So that's the that that's the basic idea of what Rosh Hashanah is and Yom Kippur and how they interrelate. But there's um, very deep roots to these days. You know, Rosh Hashanah is, according to Jewish philosophy, the day of the creation of man. This is the day where man was the sixth day of creation. That's when we meet Adam. Adam and Eve and the whole episode um, was all on, on, on day six. We're told, as additionally, Rosh Hashanah is the day of the beginning of God's kingdom. Right? So to speak, God's dominion, God's rule was obviously, uh, if you accept the Jewish definition of God, it means that it's eternal. It's not bound at any time. However, because, uh, in, a, in a kingdom where there's no constituents, there's no independent uh, 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 attestment, so to speak, to God's dominion, there's some, it's, a, it's a different kind of kingdom. Right? If you have an individual who is capable of rejecting God, right? man is endowed with free, with free choice. They can accept God or they can reject God. That's the definition of man. Right? Half man, half, uh, half beast, half, half angel, we're told in the Talmud. That's what man is. You've got a body, you've got a soul, you have options. Right? Man can choose to be great, can choose to be terrible. Man can choose to accept God, can choose to reject God. That's an option given only to us. Hence, God's kingdom, so to speak, uh, uh, is presented with an opportunity right? when humans are uh, in, uh, introduced to the picture. It's an opportunity for either expansion or detraction of God's kingdom. Why? Because a human is capable of rejecting God. It's in his hand. He has the options. We, all, that's what we, we know humans have the options. Some humans accept God. Some humans reject God. That's the reality. And when a human does accept God, and does recognize God, and doesn't alienate God from his from 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 his uh, from his his, his Weltanschauung. Right. Nice word, huh? Uh, Weltanschauung is it means world view. Um, uh, then, then, it's so to speak an independent verification of God's kingdom. So, in essence, it's Rosh Hashanah is the birthday of really two things: a of man, but b from God's perspective. From God's perspective, this is the, the, the beginning of his kingdom. Now, Adam accepts God, right? To whatever degree, I want to get sidetracked with that discussion. It's a big discussion. Like, how did he accept God? But kind of he rejected him, so to speak. Yeah, that, yeah. but the, uh, um, God's kingdom began at that day. Now, if you remember, way, way back when we were doing a series here called Discover God, we mentioned, we dealt with a major philosophical challenge that we have that if God is complete, if God is not lacking anything, why did God create the universe? Why did God create man? That was a question that we dealt with extensively. And one of the reasons that we said, one of the two classical Jewish answers to that major question was that God indeed is lacking nothing, but God's kingdom, so to speak, is, uh, is uh, much smaller than it would be if humans attest to that kingdom. So, hence, Adam comes around, Adam is created, Adam testifies to God's existence, it's God's kingdom, uh, is inauguration, so to speak, and every year on Rosh Hashanah, 
every year we come back to that same spiritual energy. We know that Jewish holidays, right, they're not just memorializing a certain event or a certain episode or a certain reality. Rather, they're reliving it. Right? It's as if the first time that an event happened, it creates a certain spiritual energy that we can revisit every year at that same point in the year. That's a general view of, of all Jewish holidays. So Rosh Hashanah is the birthday of man. It's the time where man gets renewed every year. It's a time where you can recreate, reinvent yourself from fresh. Why? From, you, know, you got a fresh start. This is the day, this is the birthday of mankind. Hence, every year at your birthday, you can get renewed again, and you can reinvent yourself in a, in a, in a, in a new fashion. Right? That's Rosh Hashanah. Additionally, it's the day where God's kingdom gets renewed. Because the same, the, the, the other element of Rosh Hashanah is the spiritual is the spiritual creation, so to speak, of God's kingdom. So every year, God's kingdom gets renewed. And hence, if you look at the prayers, you look at the liturgy of, of Rosh Hashanah, and it's one of the ten days of repentance. But we don't find a single mention of, of any sin. There's not a single mention of sin. And it seems like. Seems like a legitimate question that if you don't have sin, then what are you repenting for? How could you how could you have repentance devoid of sin? That's a question that we'll dig into a little deeper. But what you do find a lot is talking about God's kingdom. We have, for example, the ten verses that we bring of God's uh, of God's kingdom. Right? We have the ten verses that we bring from all of, over the Bible that talk about God's kingdom. We have the shofar. The shofar is, so to speak, heralding the new inauguration of the, the new king. And we mention again and again, we have the Elena prayer, we talk about God's kingdom. Throughout the whole Rosh Hashanah, we mention God's, the idea of God's kingdom hundreds of times, probably. Right? Why? Because this is the day where God's kingdom gets renewed. Now, what happens? What happens when you have a new administration that comes into town, right? come to Washington? What's the first thing they do? Cry. Huh? Well, they have obviously that, but what's the first item of business? The first item of business is to evaluate who in the administration who stays and who goes. Right? It's a new administration. You say you have lots of posts that are filled. You have the uh, uh, the you know the you know the people that all, all the ambassadors and all the judges and all the secretaries and right everyone. And you you evaluate: is this person we're going to keep them on, or are we gonna are we gonna get rid of them and get someone else in their stead? The judgment of Rosh Hashanah, we're judged. Why specifically the day, the birthday of man, happens to be the day, the beginning of God's kingdom? Oh, and it happens to be the day of, of judgment. How do these things interrelate? Well, the real, it's really, it's really, it's, 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 in, it's in essence one thing. Man was created. That created a reality of God's kingdom. That's renewed every year. When a kingdom is renewed, they judge. And specifically, the judgment is going to be who is a positive contributor to, to the kingdom? Who is positively contributing to the message of bringing God to the world. Right? The idea of Tikkun Olam that we spoke about last time, the idea of, 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 of bringing morality into the world, that's, so to speak, the, the, the Jewish mission. Who is positively contributing to that and who is not contributing to that? And that's the judgment. And that's what Shoshanah. Yom Kippur. What happens to Yom Kippur? Well, what's the origins of Yom Kippur? When was the first Yom Kippur? Anyone knows when the first Yom Kippur was? Anyone? Anyone's inventory guesses? <laughs> it's in Exodus. It's in, that's right, it's in Exodus. Booyah, golden calf, right? Moses goes up to the mountain. <laughs> Moses goes up to the mountain on, on the sixth day of, of um, uh, 
of of uh, sorry, what are you saying? On Sivan, sixth day of Sivan, which is Shavuos, right? The revelation at Sinai comes back. What are the Jews doing? They said that they have the golden calf. God says, I'm going to destroy the Jewish people. I'll re- recreate the nation. And Moses tries to negotiate. Uh, Moses goes up to heaven for another 40 days on the first day of Elul and comes back on Yom Kippur. And the Almighty says, Salach the Almighty finally forgave the Jewish people for the sin of the golden calf. Right? And that's the, and the following day they started building the tabernacle. Right? That's the basic construct. Yom Kippur was the day where God decided to not destroy the Jewish people, forgive them. Hence, it created a certain reality that comes back every day where this is the day of forgiveness, this is the day of atonement, this is the day of purification. This is the day where God takes our sullied soul, sullied with sin, and washes it away. Right? Forgets about it. And you can build a tabernacle. You guys are here to stay. The Jewish people are here to stay. That's why every year that same energy exists. Every year that same closeness that we had to God when God was able to overlook, when God treated treat us like a father, was able to overlook our sins, we revisit that every, every year. And God once again, uh, once again washes away, uh, cleanses us from all our sins. Now, it seems like it, it's a, um, it happens to be, it's a great kindness that the sealing of the judgment happens to coincide with the day of the God's atonement. It's, it's the greatest day of mercy. It's the highlight of the year because it's the day where God is washing away our sins. This is the day that we're going to be close to God. God's going to atone for us. Purify us right, from all our sins. We will come pure close to God. That's what the verse says. That, why? Because that's the day which is designed, designated for atonement, for forgiveness, for mercy. And it happens, and God's greatest kindness is that that same day happens to overlap with the day that we're sealing the judgment. We got the best deal we could possibly get here. We have a judgment being that, that's, that, that, that's uh, about to be sealed, and it happens to be sealed on the day where God is most, uh, uh, most uh, likely to forgive us. That's Yom Kippur. Right? Those are the basic ideas of Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. Now, if you had to organize, if you had to arrange, if you had to... If you were given the calendar and you were told what is what is the um, what is the proper order, what, what what does it make more sense to have to have the cleansing before the judgment or the cleansing after the judgment? Doesn't it seem doesn't it make more sense to have Yom Kippur before Rosh Hashanah? That way you go into judgment and you're, you're clean, you're pure from all your sins. Doesn't that seem more uh, of, of a proper way to organize it? Like if, you, if you were told, hey, we have one holiday, it's the holiday of God's kingdom, we're blowing the chauffeur, and everyone's being judged. Right? The whole world is going in front, in front, like the Mishnah says in Rosh Hashanah, the entire world passes before God, like, like sheep that are being counted one by one. Everyone's judged individually. Everyone has their time to spotlight, and they're being analyzed for all their, all their actions are being scrutinized. And there's this other day called Yom Kippur, right? Where God takes everyone's sins and just cleans them all off. Doesn't it make sense to organize the day of Yom Kippur before the day of Rosh Hashanah? Doesn't that seem more logical? Because then there's no room for change. There's no room for improvement. You can't learn from your mistakes. Okay. That's because he's merciful. I mean, it doesn't make sense to be merciful, but God is. And so they're swapped. What do you say, Lynn? Well... Everybody wants to look their best. Okay? 
And of course, whether it's before other people or before God, uh, everybody wants to look their best. But that's not necessarily uh, God's view. I mean, he sees people for what they are, all right? And so, and so therefore, I mean, if you want to look your best before, then sure, you know, let Yom Kippur come first, right? But if you want to look the way that you are, so you're normally, saying. I think what I think what you're, you're saying, and I think what Sean is saying is that I didn't even think about this. this is another angle. See, this is what you get when you crowdsource ideas. Um, I, yeah, that that yes, it's it's a good thing to have this introspection to know where you're flawed, because then you know you could use that as a springboard for growth, for change, for fixing. Excellent. I like that idea. I'm going to add that into <laughs> into the. Yeah, but Tikkun Olam, because the world is flawed. I mean, it's, it's a surrealization of a flawed world and a flawed individual, and that's a good thing to know that your flaws, because then you know where it is, what arenas you have to focus your energy and your time and your efforts to try to improve. I like that idea. Yeah. I read this morning in um, Rabbi Jacobson's Meaningful Life series. I don't know if any of you have read Yeah, so a very interesting point that you also brought up um, that the Hebrew term for repentance, who knows, teshuva, is the same word for returning. It's the same word. I mean, that's not, you're not returning, well, you're, where you're returning to, you're returning to a place where you've been before, right? If you haven't been there before, you can't return there, obviously, right? So where you're returning, because you, there was a point in time where you, your soul was pure. Right? It was it was pure, and that's how you got it, and you want to bring it back. It's like when you have when you have, when you lease the car, you want to return it back in, in the same the same state that you got it. Well, so you get charged, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, that that, that 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 that's very interesting. But if you look at Rosh Hashanah, okay, I wanted, this is I, I like your guys' point. I'm saying a different a different aspect of it. This was all going to come back, by the way, to the point we started off with. It's just a little bit of a circuitous route. <laughs> if you look at the praise of Rosh Hashanah, we mentioned this already once you won't find a single mention of sin. You won't. Look at look through, look through Rosh Hashanah, you won't find. If you look, however, in Yom Kippur, you'll find hundreds of mentions of sin. Right? There's ten times we say the al Right? We do the Shamnu Baganu. Shamnu Baganu is like uh, 22. We do it like, I think, uh, 12 times. Uh, plus there's the al There's 44 al We mentioned we sin with this, we sin with that, we sin with this. Right? We're, we're, we're constantly focusing on sin. But on Rosh Hashanah, which is one of the days of ten, so ten days of repentance, we don't mention sin. Hence, there's an aspect of repentance irrespective of sin. Right. What's that? So I, I, um, I once was uh, in, I was in a shul in, in Israel like ten years ago. I remember this story. This guy was saying a, a, like, a, like an example, a parable. So you have this king. Right? Old Jewish parables, by the way, are the king was a son. Yeah, that's the way they always start. Uh, king was a son who misbehaved. Almost all Jewish parables. But anyhow, there was this king, and the king uh, had the painter, and he said, the painter, I want exactly this color of paint. And the guy went to the store, they didn't have the paint, so he just got something that was very similar, very close. 
in color, and like very, very similar. And he paints the whole mansion and the whole the whole palace, and the king comes, looks the finished job. He's like, "What's going on here?" Right? He painted the wrong color. He painted the wrong color. And he tells him, "Look, come on, does it really matter? It's one shade off. It, it, does it really? Is it really so important?" And he tells him, "Dude, I'm the king." I'm the king. Whether or not it's important to you, when the king tells you something, that itself makes it important. The idea being that if we want to repent, if we want to undo that that we did, we first have to recognize what we did. We first have to understand the magnitude of what it means to sin. Right? It means you went against God. Who's God? God is creator of the entire universe, of all the cosmos, of every single bit of matter, every cell in your body, and every cell in everyone's body. Right? You rebelled against God. Right? That's what it is. You, 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 the, the, we're try, you have to impress upon yourself. You have to know what you did wrong before you try to correct it. It's like the 12th step. The first step of the 12 steps is always to, to acknowledge that you, that, you, that you made a mistake. Because if you don't have that recognition, you can't fix it. Right? If you don't know what, how you erred, how are you going to fix it? So we have two days. We talk about God's kingdom. We don't mention a single sin. We don't. Why? Because the process is where you first recognize that you, through your actions, you distance yourself from God. You, you know, you, if, uh, a sin is tantamount to rebellion, to treason against God. High treason. Once you have two days of Rosh Hashanah, you have two days of Rosh Hashanah, you know that, well... You have this idea for this God. You have the chauffeur, like this is a king. This, it's real stuff. And you recognize that, oh, there's a king, and therefore his instructions matter. It's not just meaningless. It's, you may think it's meaningless because well, what difference does it really make what color it is, right? Is it really, is it really that important? Right? For us, it might not be that important. But cause coming from God, that raises the spectrum, or that raises the, uh, um, the, the, the gravity of rejecting that. Now, The tshuva process, the repentance process, right? The first thing is to recognize we, did, we made a mistake, right? And I think that's even more difficult, right? It's harder than, than fixing the mistake is actually to recognize the mistake. There was, uh, you know, there's this, uh, back in the, when I was 16, I used to read the Dale Carnegie books. I don't know, because I, I don't know why. I guess because I thought it was like... Go get her. Well, yeah. I like. Re- I, I read like how to win friends and influence people like seventeen times. Like I could quote you what pages on such nonsense. Well, not nonsense. It's a good book. But then, like once you see like a word in Rambam in Maimonides, like you like every all the wisdom of of of, of Dale Carnegie distilled is is just one sentence in the Rambam. Like yes, uh, yes, it's it's nice, it's awesome, but it doesn't compare to what we have. Uh, but the first thing that he writes, the first, the first. As I was preparing this, slide, I remember this. This uh, first, the first like a point that he tries to convey in the book is that people will never admit that they're wrong. And he gives a story about this um, this this criminal. I don't remember exactly why he was a criminal. He was like public enemy number one in like England or someplace like that. This guy was just like robbing and pillaging and murdering and raping, and he was having a standoff with the cops, and he was shot. And as he's bleeding, he's writing this tirade, and he's proclaiming his innocence, and everyone, everyone, everyone else in the world did wrong besides for him. <laughs> and he uses this as 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 a as a way of uh, Dale Carnegie does as a way of telling uh, like uh, telling the reader that other people will never admit that they're wrong. 
There was this, I saw this also, the story, there's, there's this judge who part of, uh, part of what she does is that she gets people to, um, all converts, they, she asks them to write like a letter explaining like remorse or, you know, for what they did wrong. And she said that like, people like, refuse to accept blame. You know, people refuse to admit that they made a mistake, that they were wrong, that they erred, that they sinned, that they did a crime. They blame it on their parents, they blame it on the school, they blame it on someone else. It's very easy to find to assign blame for our own mistakes. It's very hard to look in the mirror and say, it was me. It's all, only me, no one else. I have no one to blame besides for myself. It's very hard. This step of Rosh Hashanah, this step of accepting culpability is very hard. I think the idea, generally, the idea of accepting culpability is very hard. It's compounded by the fact that we don't typically view our spiritual actions as having the same impact as our physical actions. You know, to us, our spirituality is kind of like an idea. You know, it's like a box that we check. You know, it's not as real to us as the physical world. You know, if someone, God forbid, is driving and kills the rabbit, I had this student of mine. Oh gosh, he calls me up. She says, Rabbi, and she was like hysterical. Um, I was driving, and I, she killed a bird. Roadkill. And she was so broken. She wanted to know how could she repent, and how could she undo it, and what psalms to say. And to me, this was, I just thought of this now, but it, it's striking. Like, if you kill a bird, you didn't do anything wrong. You, it was, you didn't deliberately kill a bird, you know? You didn't, it's nothing. But if you make even a single slight sin, it's massive. It's massive. But because we don't, we say, oh, there's a dead bird now lying on the ground. You know, I'm not trying to encourage people to go kill birds. I'm saying, the, but, the, but the, 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 um, uh, the perspective is that our sins are lasting, right? They last for a really long time. In fact, they last forever. Right? And they sully our soul, and they're real, and it's a rebellion against God. For us, it's very hard to, hard, hard to feel like that. For us, our physical things, things that we could see, we have a sensory relationship with, those we seem to think is more real. That's the human condition. It's, that's everyone. Right? That's what we're battling against when we're trying to introduce Torah and God to the world. Now, our sages in the, our sages in the, in the, in the Mishnah, they tell us, someone does one mitzvah, this is in Perke Avot, in Chapters of the Fathers, creates one spiritual angel, a defending angel, like a, defending, like a defense attorney, so to speak. Someone who does one sin creates a prosecuting angel. And I think that the lesson is that we're trying to um, integrate the idea into our head that our, our spiritual actions, for good or for bad, are real. And we try to make an, an image of some sort of angel that's either going to prosecute us or going to defend us. And my kids tell me, uh, they tell me, when I do a mitzvah, my kids tell me, I love it. When you do a mitzvah, you're like laying a brick on the temple. It's like as if you're laying a brick to rebuild the temple. And I think it's, it's such a good, I don't know if it's true or not, I don't know, I haven't found any sources to, to, to substantiate it. Maybe there is, I'm sure there is. But I think it's a, it's a good lesson to teach a kid because it teaches them that spirituality is real. You know, it's real. I think that, it, you know, if, if the only thing that we gain out of, uh, out of our Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur experience is a certain appreciation of the gravity of our actions, good or bad, I think it's worth it. This one idea, there is a king who gave us instructions and we rebelled and we decided, we decided to ignore them. Right? And that's a bad thing. And that's a lasting thing. Right? And that's real. 
and that's going to be with me the rest of my life. I think that if that's all that we get, then it was worth it. But now let's bring it all the way full circle. We ask the question, why is it so hard? Why is it so hard to forgive others? Why, why do we harbor ill will against people that doesn't mean bad to us when we were in grade school? You know why? Because when a sin is directed at us, when we are the recipient of the sin, right? when we feel the pain, right? we know how hard it is to remove it. We know that unless you do something about it, it's not going to go away. It's not going to go away. You know? If we want to expunge our sins that we did to God, we have to recognize that, so to speak, to God, it's the same thing. Right? We sinned to Him. And just like when someone sins to us, it lasts. It's real. You say, oh, is it really so important that someone says something disparaging to you in fifth grade? Why? Why do you still harp? Why do you have to see that person? You get welled up and, 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 and you just, you're angry, you're upset, you're uptight. Why? Hey, who cares? It was so long ago. Because God gave us the capacity to store the misdeeds of others within our hearts. And this is exactly what our own sins do. It's hard for us to, to connect the dots here. But the same thing that happens when we sin, when we do a mistake, it lasts forever. And unless you do something to change it, just like, just like when someone does something bad to us, someone offends us, someone does something wrong to us, we're going to harbor it probably forever. And that's the reality. So too, our sins, if we don't address them, they're going to be around forever. Our sages tell us, incredible, incredible idea. It's, it's a short line in Talmud. Listen to this idea. Someone who forgives others gets forgiven by, by, by God. Someone who forgives others gets forgiven by God. The idea being is that God treats us the way we treat others. Right? Tit for tat, measure for measure. Right? The same way you treat other people, that's the way you yourself get, you get, get treated. Just like we are capable of harboring ill will to other people. Unless you do something about your sins, they're not going away. However, if you're able to forgive others, if you're able to overcome and find a way to expunge other people's sins, well, God will follow in suit. God will say, I too forgive you. The reality of the misdeed that someone else did, if you're able to forget about it, and we'll get to a little bit more specifically how you go about doing that. If you're able to forget about that, God will, forget, God will forgive, forgive your sins. Because it's exactly the same thing. The magnitude of our sins is the same thing that we feel when other people did something bad to us. Right? It's not going away unless we do something about it. It's going to stay with... It's, 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 the reality is going to be there forever. I, I think... Perhaps, but this is, this is conjecture. Perhaps, perhaps God gave us such emotional sensitivity to teach us this lesson. Perhaps when God crafted man, he crafted man, when I say man, I mean mankind. He crafted man as being someone capable of having such sensitivity in emotional areas to teach us this lesson, to teach us that actions, words, last for eternity. This lesson. 
And if you have something, if you have some episode, if some story, some friend, some teacher, some parent, some spouse, something that you can look back to and say, I'm still hurt by that. Years and years later, that gives you an insight of what our sins are like as well. It teaches what our sins are like. We think, <laughs> we, have so, we have such a lot, I'm not saying, saying we, I'm not trying to uh, implicate, I think myself as well, 100%, I'm talking to myself here. <laughs> you know, that's uh, platitudinal, but that's true. Humanity, we think, we have, we think that, you know, uh, sins, uh, God, yeah, you know, me, me and God, we're, we're tight, you know. But reality, the reality is that it's not, it's a certain reality that you create, whether you want to call it an, uh, uh, an angel, a prosecuting angel, or you want to call it a, a certain spiritual uh, creation, whatever it is, our mitzvahs last forever, our sins as well, likewise, will last forever, unless we do something about it. Now, like we said, it's very hard. It's very hard for us to. It's very hard for us to actually point fingers at ourselves. It's not an easy thing. It's not an easy thing to assign blame to ourselves. Our sages tell us. Listen to this, guys. Our sages tell us. It's an amazing idea. If you see, there's a certain portion of the Torah called Sota. Sota is a, a, accused adulteress. And uh, it's a whole, there's a whole book called, the book of the Mishnah called Sota. Right? But uh, a woman who commits adultery in Judaism is one of the worst things someone could, or a man uh, for that matter. Obviously, it's the same thing. Um, so there's this whole process that that, that that happens when she comes to the temple and she's tried to try to compel her to admit if she was wrong. Uh, they make her drink this water. It's a whole story. I'm going to get in, into it. But the Talmud tells us, why was the book of Sota put next to the book of Nazir? The, the order of the Talmud, the 63 books of the Talmud, they're divided into six sections. And there's one book that should belong in one section, but it's placed in the other section. The Talmud asks, why would the sages of the Talmud misappropriate or, or, or misplace the location of this particular book of laws. Why was it put next to Nazir? The Talmud says, If someone sees, a, someone sees an adulterous woman right, uh, in her shame, he should refrain, he should become a Nazir himself. What does a Nazir mean? A Nazir means someone who accepts a vow to not drink wine for 30 days. Right? Wine brings to frivolity, frivolity brings to adultery. If you see someone who sinned in adultery, you yourself say, this could happen to me as well. I'm going to take some protective measures and I'm going to say I'm not going to drink wine for 30 days. Think about that. Not only are we told in the Talmud, there's a lesson in the Talmud here, not only are we supposed to, when we do something wrong ourselves, we're supposed to try to find a way to hold ourselves accountable for it goes even deeper. If we see someone else, we see someone else, we don't know who this person is. We just happen to be in temple, we're minding our own business, and we see, we, see, we see the adulterer and the adulteress being treated so poorly, right? being treated for what they did. We see someone else who has a certain spiritual malady, we point fingers to ourselves. We don't point, finger, point fingers to them, we point fingers to ourselves. This can happen to me as well. We take a lesson from other people's misdeeds. For sure, from our own misdeeds. But obviously, this is something that we have to work on. When you see someone else's flaws, the tendency is to say, oh gosh, what a terrible person. Who, who, who educated you? Where are your parents? 
Right? That's the thing. That, that's a normal response. The Torah tells us our response is, this could happen to me as well. You know? The, uh, the, only, the only lesson that I know of the Baal Shem Tov, Baal Shem Tov, I heard the term Baal Shem Tov. Mm-hmm. Baal Shem Tov was the founder of the Hasidic movement. I know nothing about Hasidut. Nothing. I readily admit that. But there's one lesson that I know, and that's this lesson from the Baal Shem Tov. He said, he said, everything, you have, you have to treat everything like a mirror. Every action that you see, you have to, you have to point fingers to yourself. If the world's like a mirror. Right? Whatever you see in others, Right? It's kind of like a, you should take that and point a flashlight inward. Ask yourself, where do I have the flow within me and how do I fix that? So it's totally the opposite of what we're used to. Now listen to this. Once we understand, if we're able to do this throughout the Rosh Hashanah repentance process, we understand what our flaws are. We understand that we made a mistake. We understand that we erred. And we understand that that matters, that lasts, that's real. Right? That's just like the feelings that we have within ourselves of people that did bad things to us. Same thing. It's going to last. If it's going to last forever, unless you do something to battle, unless you either expunge that from yourself or that person reconciles with you. Once we have that understanding, listen to this statement in the Talmud. Seven things were created before the world. What are they? Torah. Tshuva, repentance. Gan Eden, the Garden of Eden. Gehenom, which is loosely translated as purgatory or hell. Kisei Akovod, God's chair. Beit Hamikdash, the temple in Jerusalem. Shmo Shal Mashiach, the name of Mashiach. Now, what this means is, what I'll say is it's out of the scope of our discussion, which is a nice way of saying I have no idea what it means. Right? What does it mean, the name of Mashiach? What does it mean, God's chair? What does that even mean? I don't even know what these things mean. But the whole idea of being created before the world, mm-hmm. what does that mean? I interpret it to mean that there was already, there was an overarching system of cosmic justice, of God's justice, with you know the standard in the Torah and the God's chair being the seat of judgment, with the name of Mashiach being this idea of eventual redemption. Um, the Beit HaMikdash being, you know, the place of worship, and then also eventually the the, the courtroom, and eventually the the castle, essentially, of God, um, and that this whole this whole concept, this whole idea that there is a God and we are accountable to Him, and there are rules and there's a system of judgment existed before anything else, and then everything that we know in the material world was created afterwards. To play and that based upon a certain framework. See, that's the framework. Yeah. I like that. I didn't even think that's about how that. I, interpret it, I didn't think about that. Mm-hmm. That's, that. That's good. I like that. Um, so you're, you're kind of connecting them all together as kind of at different elements of a certain reality. Yeah. What I wanted to say, tell me if you agree with this, why, why is it created before the world? Perhaps because with the it couldn't have been created post the world, so to speak. It had to be created before the world. Why? Because these things are, def- they would defy the world. Right? They, they would defy the world. It, it's supernatural, so to speak. It's something that the world, if the world was already established with the framework of whatever the, uh, of, of what the, the limitations, so to speak, that the world presents us, Torah, God's wisdom, God's brain, right? you, know, you give the Torah to humans, we could study the Torah, we have insight to God's brain, that doesn't make any sense. Like, that's beyond the capacity of, 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 of limited 
of, of limitation of, of what the world, the world is about limitation, right? Yeah. Well, and if it, if it came after, it would make it seem like those things are responsive to the material world, when actually it's the material world and humanity that should be responsive to them. So, yeah, I, I, yeah, that makes sense. Like that's, being, well, the, the, the Talmud tells us is which means God looked into the Torah and created the world. So it's very much what you're saying, that the world is the framework for, for, for uh, the Torah is the framework for the world, yeah, like not the, the other ones. Yes. That game. Not yeah. pawns. Pawns is powerless. You know, like I feel like yeah, 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 we're not pawns. That's for yeah, sure true. But for lack of a better term. I mean, we're playing that in, in, with those rules. Yeah. I wanted to say a different idea, and I think you're, what you're saying is 100% true, and I say a different perspective. I think that these things are supernatural, and I, I think that specifically tshuva, we're talking about tshuva repentance. For us, we know how hard it is to undo or to forgive someone for their misdeeds. Right? Mm-hmm. Our misdeeds against God have the same effect. God creates tshuva. God created tshuva. What does tshuva do? What does repentance do? Repentance completely nullifies, obliterates any remnant of the activity, of, of, of the sinful activity. Even if we're able to, even if we're able to, theoretically, even if we're able to forgive other people, let's, let's say we do the work. We'll talk about how we go about doing that. Someone did something bad to you, someone betrayed you, someone embarrassed you, someone wasn't dishonest with you, whatever, whatever it may be, you have a grudge in someone. However you go about fixing that, how do we go about fixing that? The scar still lingers. There's still something. It's, it's very, 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 very hard. You know, when you were good friends with someone and something went wrong or the relationship went sour, it's very hard to actually reclaim that, that friendship. You might be cordial with each other, but it's still very hard to do that. With God's repentance, when God forgives us, it's gone. It's as if it never was. And that is something which is so supernatural because once something is done, it can't be undone. That's the rules of the of universe. You can't go back in time. You can't change what you did yesterday. It's not possible, right? right. We don't have that capacity. Right? We live in a linear world, and that's it. And it moves on. Our decisions we make are forever, uh, forever um, etched into the human history. That's the reality of the world. What comes along, tshuva, and tshuva was able to change what happened. Right? If someone sinned, but they repented for it. It's as if they never sinned. That is something which is beyond the scope of what the rules of the universe would dictate. Hence, it's something that had to be created before the world. It's something which is beyond, which beyond the, the rules of the world would not tolerate tshuva. And I think if we read that, but we didn't understand the magnitude of our actions, once we understand the magnitude, then it makes sense. Like if you understand that something that you do has lasting effect, comes along tshuva and erases that, whoa, that's magic, tshuva magic, mm-hmm. right? repentance magic. Right? Once we understand the gravity of what we did, we see how tshuva actually plays, uh, you know, ha- has this magical, uh, magical effect. Okay. That was my introduction. Ready to start? <laughs> <laughs> yeah? Yes. Okay. <laughs> We're told, on Yom Kippur and Tshuva and repentance only atone for sins between man and God. Sins between man and man, you do not attain forgiveness for them unless you appease your friend and he grants you forgiveness. 
Appease means, what does it mean to appease? It means to actually reconcile, right? to, 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 to explain, to talk, to negotiate, to, to, to have a dialogue, to have a, to, have a, to have a discussion about it. And to be granted forgiveness. So Yom Kippur, and, and we all want to get this all in the door before Yom Kippur, right? before, uh, before the judgment seal, because our judgment is based upon our actions. Now, I want to say another point, just to... Our judgment is not only what, what will happen to us in our physical world. In fact, according to many commentaries, it's not at all about the physical world. It's about a spiritual year. Like, this year, right? This reality that we try to create with our actions, this world that we're building for ourselves, this little nest that we're creating for ourselves, a spiritual nest that we're going to exist when we're just a soul. We're all going to be stripped of our body. Our body's going to be... Every single one of us will be dead at one point. Guaranteed. And our body will disintegrate. We'll have a soul then. Our soul will continue on. It will live. In what world will it live? The, a spiritual world and a world that we create with our actions. And a Yom Kippur, we get judged for our actions. And we get judged for this year. Will we live or will we die? Spiritually. Yes, uh, I'm saying one, one opinion says that it's just spiritual, uh, but of course it's the physical as well. But that's kind of much less important. What kind of reality will, does my soul? Does, what kind of world do I build for my soul? My actions will determine, and if I don't get, if I'm not granted atonement from God, forgiveness from others, I may have a flawed world, or I may have not a non-existent world, which is really bad, really, really bad. Now, God is merciful. God is forgiving. God is purifying. God is giving atonement. Yom Kippur is a day where God is almost giving away freebies. It's important for us to atone for all our sins, as we'll see a little bit later. Yom Kippur, provided we atone for some of our sins, God is going to forgive us on all our sins. Now, God is exceptional uh, in this way, as opposed to people are not. If someone has a grudge against us, or if we bear a grudge against someone else, every specific element must be individually forgiven. Right? Because that person is the guardian, is the owner, so to speak, of our misdeeds. If we did something wrong to someone else, or someone else did wrong, something wrong to us, they have to be appeased, because they're the ones who are in charge, who own, so to speak, this, this sin. Right? You just you sin to them. Therefore, they have to forgive you. And humans are much uh, more unforgiving than God. Yeah. There was this great episode. It's a great story. Rabbi Israel Salanta, Rabbi Israel Salanta, we might have mentioned his name here a few times. Um, he's uh, the founder of the Muslim movement, a great, great personality in the 19th century. If you remember the story about the cigarette, yes. or the cigarette, that was him. So he was once, he was once praying... In uh, on Yom Kippur, and when Yom Kippur, by Ni'ilah, by the by the highlight of the prayer, right, the sealing of the judgment, right, the most auspicious time of the year, and he was sitting next to that guy, and the guy was sobbing tears, just like, and his tears were cascading down his face onto his book. So Rabbi Salanta was so was so taken by this by by this expression of emotion. 
that he like leaned over and like he wanted to read the read the read the words from the tear-soaked pages. And the guy noticed that he was looking and he kind of shoved them away. <laughs> and to him, like this was like a, a person could be so so uh, serious and, and so emotional about getting atonement from, from, from God, but could still be so callous in relationship to other people. Yeah. And on Yom Kippur, think about that. You know, my, my grandfather was in yeshiva in, um, in Poland in 1930s, 1937 probably, the, year, the episode happened in 1937, 1938, one of those years probably. And this was the yeshiva, like think about the titans of scal- uh, of, of, of men, of, of, of actions, of, 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 of the greatest scholars in the world, we're all collecting this one yeshiva and me or Google it. It's a flagship yeshiva of, uh, of, of, of the Jewish people. It's uh, Next year, it's it it's, is its bicentennial. It was founded in 1815 in a little town in Mir, in Poland, way before the Russian uh, spaceship Mir. And in fact, it's the biggest big team in the world right now. It's like it has 7,000 students, enormous. Anyhow, so he was in the yeshiva, and it was like it was the Musaf prayer of Yom, of of Yom Kippur. And some guy tells him, "Come with me, like a little prayer, like to leave." He follows him, and they go into the dormitory, and he goes up the steps, and he goes into the room, and he sees the head of the Rosh Yeshiva, the head of the Yeshiva, the spiritual leader of the Yeshiva, all the major stu- all the like the major scholars and the teachers there. They're all standing there, and there's a sick there's a sick boy, he's sick in bed, and they're all visiting him. And see, he always writes how how struck he was, how struck he was that like Yom Kippur, like. Musaf, like this is the highlight. This is where we we, we relive the crying adult, the the high priest's uh, activities in the temple on Yom Kippur. And what's everyone doing? They're all visiting someone. They're visiting a sick person. That supersedes that, you know. The idea of 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 of, of taking care of your uh, of your fellow, of not losing sight, of not just having the uh, relationship with God, but also with men. So, there's a tantamount importance of forgiving others, of gaining forgiveness from others, and of gaining forgiveness from God. I want to go one by one. How do we forgive others? How do we gain forgiveness from others? And how do we get forgiveness from God? Maimonides tells us, our favorite, if someone is hurt by someone else, someone did something wrong to you, what should you do? You have to go over to him, he must make his pain known to the person who wronged him. You have to go over to the person and say, by the way, I'm very upset at you. Right? I'm very pained by you. I'm very uh, hurt by what you did. If you request forgiveness, then you should forgive him. Maimonides is telling us, don't harbor it in your heart. If someone does something wrong, the right thing to do is to be direct and be open about it and talk to the person and tell them generally that you were hurt. And that's a huge miss because you're encouraging them to, do, to, 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 to ask forgiveness. And that's a very hard thing for you to do because our tendency is to just hold it in our hearts and let it just grow, you know? And I think uh, this is a, a slightly tangential note. You know, if we, like with our relationships, especially with our spouses, you know, 
we're upset about something, something minor and trivial, like the way they, uh, the way they use the toothpaste or the way they don't take out the garbage or they leave baby's diapers hanging around or whatever, something trivial. But we say, you know what? I'm going to be a righteous person. I'm not going to mention it. But then every time you see, like you get angry. Like you see it again and you, see it, and you get angry. And then something else happens and it just sends a tirade of like, uh, of misdirected anger for something else. You know, because you let something grow and develop and swell, now something else sets you off, but you're, it's not, you're not even upset about the thing that set you off. You're upset about something else, but you didn't address it. And you're doing a disservice to yourself, but to the, to, you know, to the person that you're, that you're, that you're uh, directing your, your, your displeasure with. Why? Because just tell them, talk to them, and you could, if you have an open uh, 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 dialogue with them, then they, they'll probably fix that, and you'll move on from that. You'll be happy, and you won't have to have this pain in your heart, and it won't, it won't explode sometime down the road. But similarly, when someone does something wrong for you, the proper thing, says the Rambam Maimonides, is to go over to them and tell them, you did something wrong to me, I'm very pained, I'm very hurt. And you, sh- and you know, but you know, I, I, I want to, I want to reconcile this with you. That's, I think, if we could say, you know, that's that's probably the bravest approach. You know, let's say you're not going to do that, or what? Are, what are the other some other some other tips that we could that we could do? You know, so I think that I think that a uh, a healthy outlook is that. Holding a grudge against someone is fruitless and laborious. It's fruitless because you don't accomplish anything. You have nothing besides for one less friend. And it's, it, it's a big deal. It's like you're, you're, you're taking emotional baggage with you. Every time you see that, that person, it just, you just reawaken this, this pain or this, this, um, this, this anger, whatever it is. And what do you gain from it? You gain nothing. You know. my, grandf- my, my brother told me yesterday, I said, I'm speaking about forgiveness, so he told me this line. Holding a grudge is swallowing a poison pill and hoping the other person dies. That was kind of clever. Um, yeah, you don't gain anything. Like you're upset, about some- you're upset about something and you're so angry about something, and you're angry, about, angry at someone, but you don't actually accomplish anything. It's fruitless. Right. You hurt yourself, and it's so—it's such a good feeling to get something off your off your chest. Like, if you actually are able to forgive them, it feels very good. Yeah. yeah. But I also think, listen to this, guys. I think it's hypocritical and inconsistent if you don't forgive other people. How so? If I asked all of you, are you guys good people or bad people? What will you say? I think everyone here will say what we'll say. Generally good. Generally good. We're good, right? <laughs> Most people will say that about themselves. I want to ask everyone to say a different question. Has anyone here ever made a mistake? Did something wrong? Of course. of course. How is it possible that we consider ourselves good people, but we all admit that we do bad things? Or we have done bad things, or it's... Of course. I heard of course from somewhere in the audience. <laughs> How is that possible? The answer is that we say that we're good people... But sometimes we act out of character. I'm a good person, 
yeah, overall, I'm a good person. Sometimes I make, I make mistakes. Uh, uh, I get, I get uh, influenced. I have a bad day. I have to, like you said, I, you had a bad day. Someone at the at the job set you up. You make, you do bad things, but you, uh, but you still assign yourself the label of being generally good. Mm-hmm. When we go to God and we ask forgiveness, what are we saying? What's the construct? What, what is the framework of our argument? Well, we're telling him, yes, we did something wrong. But I'm still a good person. What we're doing is we're doing essentially the same argument. We're saying, I'm a good person who acted out of character. I made a mistake. I did something, I did something which I, I'm not that person. That's what is about. That's what repentance is about. It's arguing or demonstrating to God that I did something wrong, but that's not who I am. When I hold a grudge against someone, I am, what, am I, what am I doing? I'm saying that this person did something wrong and I can't look at them and they're bad forever. What do you mean? How come you don't record the same, uh, you know, the, the, the same immunity that you give yourself? You admit that you also do wrong things, but you still consider yourself a good, pe- a good person. How can you give this person, the, the other person? It's hypocritical to say, I want forgiveness from God but I'm not going to give forgiveness to someone else. So in essence, what we said, we, we brought earlier, that you gain, you gain forgiveness from God when you grant forgiveness to someone else. So we said earlier, because it's really the same, the, 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 the effect of a sin to God is the same effect as a sin to someone else. So if I'm able to overdo that, God will, God will in turn uh, overlook my misdeed. Here we're saying a, a, a level deeper. What we're saying is that the same argument that I would use to defend myself and to seek atonement, forgiveness from God, if I were to use that same thing consistently for other people as well, I would forgive them as well. So it's insincere and hypocritical and inconsistent for me to ask God for forgiveness, but to not forgive other people. There's a saying that um, we have a tendency to judge ourselves based on our intentions others based on their actions. That's right. And then if you if you can internalize, basically like a way to internalize that, and I look at this a lot from a parenting perspective and, and you know, dealing with discipline and guidance, is if you can look at somebody who appears to be misbehaving um, or appears to be wronging someone and try to assume positive intent or assume neutral intent, like rather than seeing their action and saying, oh, they did X because they're a terrible person and they're trying to hurt me, try to assume, oh, there might be something here I don't understand. This may be a mistake. You know, maybe it, rather than getting angry about just that action and try to assign my own, in my own judgment a positive and neutral intention behind it, it's easier to go and talk to them about it and not carry that hard feeling. And then at the same time, turn it back on yourself and say, I know what my intentions are, but if I look objectively at my actions or listen objectively to my words, how might someone else be receiving this? And, you know, try to judge yourself. And it's the same thing. It's yeah, 100%. Yeah. 100%. Um. Andrea, you have a gift with the spoken word. You have a wonderful way of, of taking Don't make me look at you while you say nice things. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it. I, I appreciate what you're saying. Thanks. Sometimes it is really difficult to look at um, their intention yeah. rather than, than what it brings up in us. Yeah. Absolutely. We have a prayer called the Tfilas Zakra. 
Now, if you need to copy this in English, I don't know. I'm sure there's a copy somewhere online in English. Tefillah Zakra, Z-A-K-A probably is the way they would translate it. It's a traditional prayer said right before Yom Kippur. Uh, it's very long, but um, I took a snippet over here, and I I want to read it to you because I think it kind of gives us like an attitude uh, of of what we should be experiencing before and during Yom Kippur. But since I know that there is hardly a righteous person in the world who never sins between man and his fellow, either monetarily or physically, in deeds or in speech, therefore my heart aches within me, because for a sin between a man and his neighbor, Yom Kippur does not atone until he appeases his neighbor. Therefore I extend complete forgiveness to everyone who has sinned against me, whether physically or monetarily, or has gossiped about me or even slandered me, so too to everyone who has injured me, either physically or financially, regarding any interpersonal law. And just as I forgive everyone, so you, so may you grant me favor in every person's eyes, so that he will grant me complete forgiveness. So, the attitude that we have before Yom Kippur is really trying to find a way to overlook, overcome the misdeeds that other people did to us, and hope that they were able to overcome if we don't uh, address it. The best way to do it, as we'll get to later, the best way to do it to get uh, forgiveness from others is to actually address it head on and say, I'm, I'm sorry, I know it doesn't want to you. I want to apologize, and I want, to, I want you to forgive me. Uh, but just like we do that to other people, we should just try to find a way to think of the people that wronged us and find a way to either, like you say, try to look for their intentions or just... Say you know they were having a bad day, whatever, whatever, whatever may be they, the, the reason why they acted like that. Either way, to try to find, to try to try to find a way to expunge the feeling of pain and of, uh, of the grudge that we're holding and get rid of that. And doing that would be tremendously would go a very long way towards our negotiation with God and telling telling Him that yes, we did things wrong, and we know we did things wrong. Ultimately, we acted out of character, we regret what we did, and we want forgiveness. Okay, now, regarding asking forgiveness from other people. So I mentioned at the beginning, it's very important to appease someone before asking them forgiveness. If someone just says, oh, I forgive you, to get you out of their hair, then, in essence, they didn't really forgive you, they just tried to find a way to get rid of you or right but they still harbor the feeling of uh, you know of, of, of hurt and pain towards you you have to appease them first you have to talk to them first you have to try to find a way that you could actually uh, repair the relationship right because an insincere forgiveness I don't know if it doesn't work at all but it, it, it's not really that effectual it doesn't doesn't really you don't you don't really it doesn't really do anything, right? The whole goal is to try to gain atonement, to gain forgiveness, to actually repair what was done. And if you just say, oh, oh I forgive you, get out, get out of my office, I forgive you. Get off my lawn, I forgive you. Uh, then you don't really, you don't really gain anything. Um, it's not an easy thing to do, as we mentioned many times already today, that uh, to accept guilt for what we did, to... Um, Come to terms with the fact that we made mistakes. It's very hard to point fingers uh, at ourselves. You have to humble yourself. Um, but that's that's the job before Yom Kippur. We want to come to Yom Kippur with as clean of a slate between man and one's fellow uh, as we could possibly uh, achieve. Now, if someone is, if you're genuinely trying to appease someone, you're trying to ask forgiveness, and they refuse, 
So Maimonides tells us that you ask uh, once, and you come back and ask again, ask three times, and that's you did your means you did what you can. And that can like we don't know how God's going to treat it, but God knows that you did everything you could, and that person is he's so to speak the sinner because he is not able to accept your uh, overtures of 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 of, of, of uh, reconciliation. Oh, we have so much more to talk about today. Goodness. What about attaining? Yes. So are, are there limitations on this? You know, a couple years ago, you know, there, there was a there was a guy in Virginia. Um, they killed all those Amish people, and then the Amish people came in and they forgave the killer and they helped his family out. And the media <coughs> huge big deal about it. And they've made other big deals about where people parents or whatever have forgiven the killer or the rapist of their children. So are there limitations? Yes, yeah, so uh, but under I knew I would get this question. Mm-hmm. Under the Jewish tradition, there's no big deal. You should be forgiving even if it's horrific. Uh, I knew I would get this question. You know why I knew I would get this question? That's right. And I think, and I, and I think every, time I, every time I get the question, I mention how I get it every time. So... Um, yes, that's a legitimate question. We don't forgive Hitler. There are certain things that what people do that are unforgivable. Even the Talmud talks about gives a list of things that if someone does them, they can never undo them. One of the examples is a murder. You can never bring the person back to life, so you can never really fully gain atonement for your sin. Because, like we said, atonement forgiveness is undoing what happened. And if if it's if it's not undoable, if you actually murdered someone, they'll never come back, and that's not that cannot be forgiven. So yes, you could say you could. There could be some measure of forgiveness that you could try to give, but ultimately, the person can't really have forgiveness. Uh, another example is when someone um, uh, when someone commits adultery but has a baby at a, as a result of that, like a bastard baby. Uh, seems to indicate that if someone does not have a bastard baby, then it would be it wouldn't be. It's still something that could be undone. It's still possible of forgiveness, but once there's already a living breathing testifying human to this to this deed well that this deed will live, live on forever but yes there's some things that are unforgivable and we don't forgive we don't forgive murderers oh no uh, there's no they don't forgive them God doesn't forgive them you know um, I, I think it is a certain measure of piety if you're, if you're able to forgive someone who did something uh, egregious to you I think it's a tremendous level of, uh, of piety if you're able to do that um there's other areas where we don't uh, we're encouraged to not ask forgiveness. Like for example, if you're a, you, have, you have a good friend that you happen to have done something really bad to, but they don't know about it, so you'll tell them, you'll go to them and say, um, "By the way, uh, a couple of months ago, I really screwed you over." You know, what will happen? They'll just be more upset, and you you'll, you're jeopardizing the relationship. So we're told in that case, just forgive. Just ask forgiveness from God, and it's worse to make them angry, and that will do worse to the relationship than uh, than just keeping quiet about it and, and doing your forgiveness uh, with uh, seeking forgiveness uh, with God. No, 
Yeah, but uh, and and that's 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 true. That they're only in charge of whatever aspects of the sin that was directed to them. But um, like you mentioned, um, murder is is a sin to man and to God. Right? God tells us not to murder, and it's also a sin to the man who's dead now. But it's a sin for them to harbor anger, so that's why they forgive. I don't know. I don't know if we're going to be judged for being angry at uh, the murderers and the Hitlers of the world. I think there's, there's uh, the, you know, the Talmud does tell us that there are certain cases where anger is not only justified, it's encouraged, you know? We're talking about Amish, I'm not talking about... Right, the right. Amish. That's true, that's true. That's true, I... That's true, but the Torah tells us that there are certain times where if we channel our anger correctly... If we're angry at people that are that are that are murdering innocent young children, that's a very good emotion to have. You know, it's a very good thing to have. So, certain cases like anger directed at re- at evils is a good thing. Either way, what about gaining atonement from God? Atonement from God. So, there's a famous letter that the Rambam. I couldn't find it last night. I looked for it on the internet, but there's this letter that the Rambam writes where the, some guy writes to him. He says, "Listen, Yom Kippur." We talk about, uh, we do the al we hit ourselves on our chest, and we talk about the, these 44 categories of sin. He's like, I, I don't do any of these. And some of them are really bad. Like, I don't do any of them. So Maimonides writes, writes to them back, he says, not only do you do them, you do them every single one of them every day. Mm-hmm. You know, because we have no idea, like, how, you know, God knows everything. God knows what's in our hearts, you know. God knows that when we give charity, but we do it because we want everyone to be impressed with it, it has, it's tainted with sin. You know, because intentions are also judged by God. You know, uh, and God, God can be very, very strict in how He measures, how He meets out um, a, a judgment. So, if we have so much, how many areas, how, how many mitzvahs in the Torah are we neglecting? How, how many, you know, how many mitzvahs, straight commandments from the Torah God gives us, and it's, it's, and we're just treasonous. And, uh, you know, we have, there's no excuse. You know, what, what can we say? How can we go and try to gain atonement from God when there's so many sins and it's, 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 it's so, you know, it's for everyone, everyone. And the Torah tells us that no one is without sin. Everyone has sin. No one, Maimonides tells us, even the great scholars have, have certain measures of sin. We're all tainted with sin. We're sullied with sin. What do we do? How do we go about it? Yom Kippur's one day at 24 hours. How are you going about trying to fix all of these sins in such short amount of time. So I want to give a, a, an idea um, that Maimonides writes. He hints to it, but I, I, I'm pretty sure that's what he means. Our goal is to do tshuva, is to return to God, is to do some measure of repentance. Yom Kippur is a day of atonement. Means, uh, if, you, if you look at the classical sources... You look at the, what it talks about Yom Kippur. It says Yom Kippur provides atonement, but only for people who do tshuva. So wait a minute. But if you do tshuva, if you, if you repent, it works the rest of the year as well. So what is Yom Kippur? Like, how, what's the interplay with Yom Kippur and repentance? If repentance works on Hanukkah or any time during the year, but Yom Kippur is some special day of repentance, as the verse says, but only if you do tshuva, only if you do repentance. So, what do you gain with Yom Kippur? What is your, what is the, what is this great atonement and purification of Yom Kippur? That uh, how does it help more than any other day? You know, if you, if you need to do repentance, then 
And Yom Kippur does not help if you don't do any repentance. That's what it says. Yom Kippur does not help if you don't do any repentance. So if you do repentance, then you don't need Yom Kippur. That's the, that's the question. The answer is that yes, Yom Kippur works and atones if you do repentance. However, if you do repentance on one sin, and you're able to find do complete repentance on one sin, God will atone for all your sins. As opposed to during the year, every sin you have to address one by one. On Yom Kippur, your job is to become, do tshuva. Do any measure of tshuva, any measure of repentance. Even a little bit of repentance, God is going to expunge us from all our sins. That's our job in Yom Kippur. Find repentance for even one sin. Now, how do we go about, how do we go about repentance? So, it's important. Repentance is different than every other mitzvah. How so? If you have tzitzis, right? Tzitzis, four-corner garments. The Torah tells us you have to have eight strings and five knots and four corners. And if you have a three-corner garment and you wear tzitzis, it's not a mitzvah. And if you have a tzitzis but you're missing a, a couple of strings, it's not a mitzvah. Right? There's a specific way of doing it. We, we talked about, we're supposed to, we were scared to talk about tefillin last week. You know? And if you only have, if you have five tefillin boxes on your head uh, as opposed to four, or if you have three, or if you have the wrong, if you have, if you miss a little bit, then it's not you didn't do anything. You know, if you're missing one of the scrolls, it's as if you have nothing. It's as if you're, you're all you're doing is wearing some hide on your head. That's what you're doing. Right? There's an exact way of doing the mitzvah of tefillin and tzitzis, and if you do it any, if you if you deviate in any way, it's as if you did nothing. Tshuva's not like that. Any little bit of of tshuva of repentance goes a long, long way to make us a, rep- a repenter and to help us for the whole Yom Kippur for the whole year. So we're told, there's four steps to tshuva. Number one, stop the, trans- uh, the transgression. First thing I do is, you, I do something wrong, I'm rebelling against God, I'm going to stop doing that. Number two, I'm going to regret. Right? You have to realize, this is what we mentioned earlier, you have to realize that your sin is rebellion against God. I, you have to feel bad about that. Right? If you don't feel bad about it, well, you're probably going to go right back to doing it. You have to regret. Number three, you have to commit to never do it again. Right? You have to make a commitment, make a resolution. And lastly, there's confession. Right? Confession is the concretization of these feelings. Right? You, you speak it out. You don't speak it out to other people. You speak it out to God. And the idea is once you translate that into an action, once you, you speak, right, you, you, take, you take a, 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 a uh, an active stance, you do something, but that goes a very long way towards uh, making these emotions and, and, and making them uh, lasting. Now, all that we do in Yom Kippur, all the prayers, all the ceremonies, all the practices are all trying to help us achieve these four steps. That's what, that's, what that's what they're trying to do. Trying to help us, uh, assist us, and encourage us to do tshuva. If you do tshuva, let's say someone does tshuva, someone, someone, someone finds a way to do the proper, check all the boxes, do tshuva on, on at least one sin. And then after Yom Kippur, they're right back in the thick of things. You know? They're right back and they're committing the same sin like nothing happened. We're told that provided that the tshuva, the tshuva at the time of the tshuva, time of the repentance, was sincere, it doesn't matter what happen, happens afterwards. Tshuva works. It's gonna. It's repentance works, irrespective of whether or not you hold up your end of the bargain. Once again, the magic of of repentance. I want to quickly um, 
Uh, we have seven more minutes. I want to talk about some other uh, aspects of Yom Kippur. We know that Yom Kippur, we are prohibited from doing five things, um, eating and drinking, uh, sexual relations, wearing leather shoes, anoint, uh, ointments and anointments and stuff like that, and taking showers, washing. Um, this is a hard thing for a lot of people. Um, you know, it's not so hard to just put on Crocs and come to shul. That one's not so hard. Uh, but to not eat and or drink for 26 hours or 25 hours, is it's hard. It's, it's not easy. Um, I think it's important for us to know why we're fasting. You know, most other fast days, they're not, they're days where you're commemorating a bad thing. It's like you're mourning. When people are not mourning, you're the happiest day of the year. Happiest day of the year. So why are we fasting? Why, why would you fast if it's the happiest day? I know, I know. Because <laughs> <laughs> we're angel-like. We're exactly. Like, on this day, God is close to us. The barriers, the physicality that prevents us, the obstacles, the barriers that um, stop us from relating to God are temporarily removed. It's the day of closeness, day of forgiveness. It's the day where God is merciful to us. We're like angels. We were white. We say angelic prayers. Uh, and we don't eat because we don't need to eat. We're kind of above that. But what about if you're, it's like 12 in the afternoon and you really need that coffee and you're freaking out and like you're hungry and you're thirsty and you're grumpy? Uh, I, I think that there's a <laughs> what sounds about right. <laughs> you take a nap. <laughs> uh, um, I, I think that I had a great insight that I learned. That I heard from my teacher in Israel. He said, "Like it's a mitzvah in the Torah to fast in Yom Kippur. So it's the only it's the only fast day that's a Torah verse. It's the only one." And this is the day where you need as many merits as you possibly can get. And every second that you're fasting, you're, it's a mitzvah. Every single second you fast, it's a mitzvah. Every, se- every second. And he's like, you should be so excited that you're able to do a mitzvah. But not only you do a mitzvah, you do a mitzvah and it's difficult for you. It's painful for you. Like, he's like, if only a Kippur was 72 hours. And we might just collapse and die, but 33 hours. Like... <laughs> Think, think, of, think of how much we could accrue. We're doing a mitzvah. Now we're doing a mitzvah. We're doing a mitzvah that's difficult, and it's, it's super difficult. Right? How, but how happy we have to be of having the opportunity to do such an easy mitzvah, comparatively. It's an easy mitzvah on the day where we need mitzvahs the most. And a mitzvah, one mitzvah that's done, that's when it's really easy, right? It's really nice. But a mitzvah that's done where it's really difficult... Could be worth a hundred or a thousand x, a thousand times uh, what a mitzvah would have done easily. Yeah, it's easy for us, you know, when uh, to, you know to give charity. Yeah, of course, celebrate Shabbos. These are fun mitzvahs. A mitzvah that's hard, that's difficult, right? That's that's that, that's worth a lot more. Uh, the spiritual accrual is a lot a lot greater. And it's all inside your temper. How happy we have to be that we're granted such a mitzvah. That's the perspective we could keep with. On a pro tip, um, uh, what I call the. Uh, there's something called a funnel. You know what the funnel is? There's, there's the funnel preparation and there's a protein pre- pre- preparation. You know, when I used to, when I first started fasting Yom Kippur, I, I would just like, wait till like five hours before Yom Kippur then just start drinking like bottles of water. Just one after another. But that's the way, you, that's the way the funnel prepares. You know, all that does is makes really long lines by the bathroom by Kol Nidre. <laughs> um, the, the real, 
what I've been doing recently is that you start drinking three or four days before Yom Kippur. And when I fast, I fast and I don't feel anything. Like I'm totally fine. Like I'm, I'm fine. I could go another 24 hours. Why? Because you, if, if you slowly prepare yourself for this fasting, you start three or four days earlier, drinking every time, you know, drinking another glass of water, uh, a glass of water on the hour, every hour, or half a cup every half hour. If you do that, you'll have no problem fasting. No problem. And you won't be waiting, uh, waiting outside by the, uh, by, the, by the bathroom. Another idea. Uh, I, I'm not sure if I... Um, so um, the the Talmud says something that if you read you read this statement of Talmud, you would think that the the author is just what is going on over here. I don't believe I've shared it with this group. If I have, pardon me. I'll share it again. Talmud says, ready. If someone sees semen on Yom Kippur, they will die that year. But if they don't die, then they know for sure that they are a Ben Olamaba. They have a portion of the world to come. And I read that. I'm like, what is going on over here? Someone says what? Semen, semen. That's why I said exactly. Yes. This is a, this is a, this is a, a, an 18 and older class, right? <laughs> so, what's going on? <laughs> That's what it says. This is. <laughs> so, this is what the Talmud says. And I had no idea what this means. It sounds very bizarre. Uh, and I had no way of explaining it whatsoever until I found one of my grandfather's writings. He explains it like, and it's amazing. You know? It says like this On Yom Kippur, we are, our judgment is sealed. Our judgment is sealed. If we're judged as individuals, we have no chance to, we have no chance. None of us, even if we do tshuva, we have no chance. No chance to actually come out, uh, come, come out righteous, to be, to, 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 be, uh, to be acquitted. No chance. Our only hope, our only hope is that we're judged not as individuals, but as members of a community. We're part of the Jewish people. Now, we're told on Yom Kippur, no sexual relations. We're refraining from pleasure. That's what the entire Jewish people are doing. There's this one guy who says, I'm not part of the Jewish people. The man, he sees semen on Yom Kippur. What he is saying is that I don't need to be part of the community. I can be judged as an individual. I'm not acting like part of the community. I'm not treated, therefore, as part of the community. So it says that if someone does that, he'll die that year. Why? Because he'll be judged as an individual. And if you're judged as an individual... You're probably not, you're probably gonna die. But if he didn't die, he should know that he has a portion of the world to come. If he if he didn't die, he was judged as an individual. He didn't die. Must be that he's a really righteous person. Because he was judged as an individual and he came out scot free. So um, I, I, first of all, it's an amazing explanation of this uh, Talmudic statement. That's what they're saying, you know. 
But I also think that it, 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 it gives us a nice little uh, perspective. We have to try on Yom Kippur to be judged as part, part of the community. And one of our, perhaps, resolutions that we should do is how we could try to do something, a community-based resolution, right? to try to do something or, or, or accept upon ourselves something uh, that, A, is beneficial not only for us, but for the community as well. To, be, to feel as we're a member of the people. I'm not an individual, I'm a part of the community as well. Um, you know, last thought here. We're, you know, Jewish people have been around for a long time. I uh, actually did a video about this. Um, YouTube.com forward slash Torch Web. Is our Torch, uh, we have video lessons, so... I encourage everyone to go there and subscribe just because it will help us raise our subscriptions. But also because there's some really good, valuable lessons. So I made a video this week um, uh, that our, our sages tell us that the reason why we're still around as a community when all the great nations are gone is because of Yom Kippur. Because of Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is the secret of Jewish continuity. How so? Talmud says... Every nation only gets judged once, once they fill their quota. The idea being, we have a, uh, everyone has a certain measure of sin that they're entitled to before God exacts retribution. Everyone has that. All the great nations, us as well, the Jewish people. What happens is, is that as their sins accrue and they get closer to the tipping point, they hit the tipping point, God destroys them and a new, a new empire uh, takes their place. So you have the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks... All these great empires that dominated the world, the Romans, the Byzantines, they controlled everything. You know, they were massive, that culture and language and land, everything. And they're gone. And we're, we're scattered throughout the world. We don't have a common language, common culture, common land, nothing, and we're still around. And the sages tell us, why are we still around? Because Yom Kippur. Every year we sin. As a collective, unit, collective group, we sin. And our sins creep up. Comes along Yom Kippur. Ooh, our sins get expunged. We get forgiven for our sins. We start from, from scratch. Therefore, God is never uh, at the point of destroying us because our sins never justify that. So, another perspective of Kippur is that, yes, it's such a valuable day. It's a valuable day for us as individuals, Jewish people as a whole. Let's try to maximize it. Um, our jobs are, number one, to ask forgiveness from other people, try to find a way for, to give, forgive others that have done wrong to us, to recognize the gravity of our actions, they can be around forever, just like uh, we could, uh, in our hearts, hold a grudge for a really long time. And uh, the steps that we uh, outlined of how to try to go about and repenting uh, and forgiving other people and seeking forgiveness and some pro tips of how to maximize your Kippur, <coughs> how your Kippur experience. Thank you all for listening, and everyone have a Gemara Chatima Tova, Tiva Chatima Tova. Yes, thank you all. <laughs>